0: Naturalist Nights. My name is Jason. I'm a naturalist with Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. So this Naturalist Nights is a 10-week free speaker series uh, It's hosted with a partnership between Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, Roaring Fork Audubon, and the Wilderness Workshop. Talks are hosted each week on Wednesdays in Carbondale at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 6 p.m. in Aspen. These are some of our sponsors that make this possible with a special shout out to Blazing Adventures who's sponsoring tonight's naturalist talk. So, these businesses, these businesses pro- provide financial and in-kind donations that cover the cost and travel expenses of our speakers and also having Grassroots TV here. So, Grassroots TV airs presentations on Channel 12 Up Valley and Channel 82 Down Valley. <coughs> also, we live stream these Naturalist Nikes talks on our Facebook page with the Wilderness Workshop Facebook page as well. If you guys haven't signed up or signed in, could you please go to the front and sign in? Uh, it helps us keep track of our numbers for these Naturalist night speakers. So if anyone's looking for continuing education certificates, we can give up to one hour per week, up to 10 hours for the series of the 10 weeks. Uh, So if anyone needs continuing education certificate hours, see me after the talk. After the talk tonight, you can join us at Aspen Tap, where we have $15 pitchers, and if you're interested in that, you need a stamp on your hand, so again, you can see me after the talk for that. Next week's presentation will be Dr. Mark Varian with his talk, The Deep History of Pueblo People. Now to introduce tonight's speaker, Aaron Derwinson. Aaron is an agricultural coordinator for the Nature Conservancy's Colorado River Program, where he works in partnership with agricultural water users on pragmatic, solution-oriented approaches to meeting water needs for people and nature. Aaron works with agricultural producers and water managers to understand issues and opportunities to improve river health by adopting new water management and irrigation practices. Aaron holds a bachelor's degree in biology from the University of Colorado, and a master's in community and regional planning from the University of Oregon. Before joining the Nature Conservancy, Aaron worked at the Rio Grande River, Rio Grande Headwaters Land Trust, helping protect important working lands, wildlife habitat, and water resources in Colorado's San Luis Valley. Mm-hmm. It is an honor for me to welcome Aaron to our 2019 Naturalist Night Speaker Series. With his talk titled, When the Wells Run Dry, Talk titled, When the Wells won't Run Dry, <laughs> at Securing Water for People and Nature in the Colorado River Basin. Let's give it up for Aaron. Thanks.
1: Okay, well thank you all for being here tonight and thanks for the opportunity to come talk with you about some of the work the Nature Conservancy is doing uh, to provide water security and address river health issues in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, I promised to make this the most romantic talk about water uh, that you've ever heard. We appreciate you coming out tonight. Um, I feel really fortunate to be able to spend my time working on these issues to protect and restore this amazing river. Uh, For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by kind of all things water, all things related to river, uh, rivers, and by this river in particular, the Colorado, which is, I think, one of the most iconic rivers in the country, if not the globe. Uh, But it's facing some serious challenges, and that's what we're going to get into tonight. And when you spend your time working on water, working on freshwater issues, working on rivers, I think one thing that at least I'm reminded of is just how precious our freshwater resources are. And so i thought i'd just start tonight with a little perspective on that Um, and if you remember sort of from your middle school science classes that 70 percent of the earth's surface is covered in water right but if you gathered all of that up into one place it would fit all in that little sphere right there that represents all of the water on the planet but most of that as you know is uh, salt water in our oceans and seas and so if you take that away and you just look at fresh water it gets even smaller And that sphere represents the entirety of the freshwater on our planet. But most of that is locked up in ice caps and glaciers, underground and aquifers. So if you look just at the surface water in our rivers and lakes, you can barely see that little tiny, you know, pinhead right there. That's one sphere. It's about 35 miles in diameter. And that small and finite amount of water uh, is all we have to meet all of our human needs for drinking, for washing, for growing our food, for the growing our fiber for our clothes, uh, but it also has to meet all the needs for nature as well. And with growing demands and climate change, we're putting more and more sort of uh, needs on this kind of ever finite resource. And water scarcity is becoming probably one of the biggest uh, global challenges I think that we're gonna face as a society. And if you look at that, uh, how water scarcity looks across the globe, Uh, It's having a pretty dramatic impact already. About half of the world's population and about three quarters of our irrigated agricultural land is impacted by water shortages on a pretty regular basis. And to me, this raises big concerns about how we're gonna provide (laughs) safe, reliable access to clean drinking water and have a safe and reliable food supply, both now and in the future. When you look at the Colorado River Basin, i sorry going back to this so yeah so if you look at water scarcity it's gonna have impacts for people but it's also gonna have big impacts for nature and across the globe freshwater ecosystems are, are generally tend to be the richest in species but they've seen the most impact okay they've declined at about twice the rate that marine or terrestrial ecosystems have and when you look at the Colorado River Basin water shortages are becoming more urgent than ever The two major reservoirs in the Colorado River Basin, Lake Mead on the left and Lake Powell on the right, have uh, declined pretty dramatically in the last decade or so. And today they're both about 40% full, which is a level that those reservoirs have not seen since they were first filled. And uh, if you've been following the news over the last year on water, I think you've really seen a story unfold of water managers just scrambling to address this issue. Because we're really in uncharted territory. They, 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 reservoirs have never been this low. In Colorado, the Yampa River last year was the first year they ever had to administer the Yampa River. And people are taking plans off the shelf and dusting them off that they never thought they would have to use. But uh, this challenge can feel sort of also overwhelming, right? I think that a lot of us in the water world feel like this a lot of days, right? There's just so much to know. There's so much intricacy in water. It's a complex topic. It's a messy topic. And you can just feel kind of overwhelmed that these problems might be all kind of be beyond our ability to tackle. But um, I think at the end of the day, we really don't have a choice. There's no substitute for fresh water. We've got to figure out how to address these issues. And uh, my job tonight, I think, is not to really make the despair of the Colorado River convincing, as convincing as it is but it's to show you that sort of hope for our rivers and streams and the people and the wildlife that depend on them is possible. And I thought I'd start that conversation with a question, a little pop quiz. And so if you think about water scarcity and how different water users might respond to that, whether they're a city, a town, or an ag user of the environment, what's the one thing that they all want? Yeah, more water. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Um, But I would argue that the one thing that, everybody wants that's actually achievable is water security and I define water security as knowing with as much certainty as possible that the water is going to be there when you turn on your tap that it's going to be there when you need to irrigate your field or that it's there in the river when you need it if you're a fish so it's about the right amount of water but it's also about the right amount of water in the right time and at the right place the challenge of course is that the actions that one water user might take to get that security they have big implications for other water users in the system And the innovation that we're focused on at the nature conservancy is trying to figure out how we can achieve collective water security right for our communities for ag and for the environment and i'm going to tell uh, two stories about how we're hopefully succeeding in doing that tonight so first we'll look at um, some work we're doing in arizona on the verde river where we're working with the agricultural community to develop a new market for a crop that can use less water can help diversify the local ag economy, and can help restore flows for the Verde, which is really one of the last best rivers in the Southwest. And then we'll come sort of back home to Colorado and we'll talk about some work that we're doing just down the road in Grand Junction. We're working with the Grand Valley Water Users Association to test kind of a large scale water sharing concept um, that's looking to tackle basin wide water scarcity issues in ways that can again kind of improve that water security but do it in a way that supports these communities and supports the health of the river uh, but first a little context I think if we want to talk about solutions we have to know a little bit about how we got where we are today and so we'll start just with a quick overview of the Colorado River Basin um, this is a map obviously covers seven states and two countries the black border Uh, on the map outlines the hydrologic boundary. Okay, so that's where the water falls and flows naturally in the basin. And a couple things I'd point out that are fairly unique to the Colorado. Um, The first is that there is a a whole slew of legal documents that governs how water is managed in the Colorado. And it starts with the Colorado River Compact, uh, which was signed in 1922, and it divides the waters of the basin between the lower basin, which is the states of California, Arizona, and Nevada, and the upper basin, okay? Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming. And the compact split the waters equally between those two basins. And that agreement that was signed almost 100 years ago has had lasting impacts that we're really just figuring out what they mean today. Okay? We're going to come back to that. The other thing that's really important to know about the Colorado River Basin is all of these red hatched areas. And those represent areas that are outside the hydrologic <coughs> basin but that rely on Colorado River water. So that includes metropolitan areas like Colorado's Front Range that gets about half of its water supply from the Colorado River. And it includes big agricultural areas like the Imperial Imperial Irrigation District uh, in Southern California. And if you're eating lettuce or carrots in the winter in Colorado, chances are pretty good that it was grown in that area with Colorado River water. But if you sort of put the map aside and you just imagine the Colorado River in your head, it's a pretty amazing river, and there's a sort of no shortage of descriptions for it. Um, my favorite one is that it's the hardest working river in the West. It provides water for 40 million people. One in eight Americans gets their water from the Colorado River. Uh, it irrigates some 5 million acres of agricultural land. It has a 4,200 megawatt hydropower generating capacity. provides power for about 6 or 7 million people. It's got a $26 billion recreation economy, and it supports diverse fish and wildlife that are found really nowhere else on the planet. But it's all at risk because the river has pretty much been stretched to the breaking point. Uh, You can see uh, the flows at the Colorado River near the delta really just take a nosedive over the last century. This is uh, Morelos Dam. It's the last dam on the Colorado River. It's essentially where the Colorado River goes to die. Little trickle is what they can't capture in the dam. And this is not the Colorado River, but the All-American Canal. But again, it's important to know how we got here if we're gonna try and fix that challenge, right? And there's two reasons why I think uh, our water challenges in the Colorado River Basin are particularly sticky. Uh, And they come down to both hydrology and past management decisions. Uh, So for hydrology, it's worth remembering, if uh, you didn't know already, that the Colorado River Basin in Colorado is a very dry place. And as the West developed, water wasn't always available when and where people needed it. And so we came up with a pretty intricate system of water rights, of other legal agreements, of dams and reservoirs and other infrastructure to move water around where we needed it. And that water rights system dates back to the late 1800s. We built a lot of that infrastructure really at the first half of the 20th century, but the West has changed dramatically since then, right? Our population has grown uh, an incredible amount. We have environmental protections in place for water quality, for endangered species that we didn't have when these agreements were first put in place. We have the rise, uh, rising importance of recreation for a lot of our communities and all of those demands, when you combine them with climate change, mean that we're really asking more and more of our rivers, and they essentially have less and less to give. And that issue then is complicated by some past management decisions that we make. And we know for the Colorado River Basin that we've allocated more water than is available on average for use. Okay. We've divvied up more than we have available. Uh, And it wasn't really a problem until recently in about 2002 when we started using more water than is available on average. And if you project that out to the future, demand is projected to go up with population growth, and supply is projected to go down and become increasingly variable with climate change. And we affectionately call this the math problem, right? You got more water going out than you have coming in, and you've got to figure out how to deal with it. And that issue is really complicated by a water management framework that's not quite flexible enough to be resilient in the face of some of these challenges. But fortunately I think we've got um, a way to deal with it and I think the Nature Conservancy has a pretty unique approach to tackling this issue. Uh, First and foremost, the way the Nature Conservancy approaches all of our work is we're a science-based organization, so science is the foundation of everything that we do, it guides our work, both where we work and how we work. Uh, The second thing that guides our approach is that um, we operate on a belief that lasting conservation outcomes come from building partnerships and developing those collaborative solutions that are gonna work for both people and nature. That if you wanna have lasting solutions for nature, if they don't work for those communities that are also relying on those natural resources, that it's not gonna stand the test of time. When we apply those to the Colorado River Basin, we have really three main strategies that we work on. Um, The first is to work on scalable water management solutions. And that's the bulk of what I'm gonna talk about tonight. It covers everything from my work with agriculture to improve irrigation infrastructure. It also includes things like designing the optimal pulse flow for the Colorado River Delta that we did a few years ago. And you can see that here. So if you remember, this is Morelos Dam. And this was an agreement that the United States renegotiated with Mexico, the treaty, and they. part of that treaty was to secure water for the environment. And for the first time really since um, Glen Canyon Dam was built, we were able to release water to the Delta to help restore that ecosystem. And if something like that is possible, it makes me think that other things are possible as well. The other two strategies really support that first one. Uh, the, the second is to improve water policy and laws that are going to benefit um, river flows and water security, right? So we've got the solutions, we need to have the laws and policies in place that support them. And then the last one um, is maybe the most important is to make sure we can increase investment in those strategies, right? And whether that's public funds, philanthropy, market-based tools, or more likely some combination of all of those, we know we need to increase investment in those solutions to be successful. And we are, you know, throughout the basin, putting those strategies to work on the ground. And my role within our program is to figure out what that looks like for agricultural water users. Globally, and in the Colorado River Basin, agriculture uses about 70 to 80% of our water supplies, or more I would phrase it as we use 80% 80% of our water to grow food and fiber. And so by necessity, if we want to change water management, if we want to do anything different with water in the West, we've got to partner with farmers and ranchers and agricultural water users. And it's not just because that's where the water is. Um, it's because changes are going to have big implications for our food supply. It's because everything that you do in ag also touches down on other natural resource concerns. Uh, and at the end of the day, oftentimes, you know, especially in places like Colorado, It's the farmers and ranchers that are often our main stewards of those resources, okay? They're the ones who are out there day in, day out, kind of physically with their hands on the resource managing it. And they can be our best advocates and allies in changing water management. And so now we'll go back to our our two stories, starting with the Verde. Um, The Verde River is in Arizona, just north of Phoenix. It provides a a major water supply for the metropolitan area of Phoenix and the surrounding areas. Um, It provides a vital resource for the fish and wildlife in that area, which is, uh, like most of Arizona, extremely dry. And it provides an important community resource and an important cultural resource for the local tribes. Um, But like a lot of other rivers in the southwest, it's been stretched thin. And part of that is due to the agricultural demands on the river. They're a major water user there like they are elsewhere. And until recently, there were many spots in the Verde River that would go completely dry in the summer and the fall because of diversions for agriculture. And over the past decade, we've been working with the ag community to try and fix that. And we focused on irrigation infrastructure improvements, on changes in irrigation water management. And we've had success, some success working with farmers um, like the Hauser family pictured here. But we knew that, that alone wasn't going to be enough and so a couple of years ago we started a conversation to say uh, hey would there be crops that could be grown in the verde river that would use less water that would allow us to still have a productive ag economy but to do it with less water and keep those water savings in the river and so we started talking with the housers about that we started talking with other farmers in the business community and we started talking about barley uh, barley uses less water and we thought this could be a good alternative And again, we picked barley for a couple reasons, Uh, one of which is that it does overall use less water than alfalfa, which is the dominant crop in the Verde River and in a lot of other rivers in the West as well. Uh, It's a heavy water user. It's a forage crop that's used for animal feed. And you can see there that barley overall is going to consume less water than alfalfa. And critically also is the timing of when barley uses water. Um, for the Verde, um, barley is planted in midwinter, and it can be germinated often with winter rains instead of having to use irrigation. And then barley is done irrigating in May. Okay? So it's taking its last irrigation water as the river is dipping down to its lowest point. You could contrast that with corn, which also uses less water than alfalfa, but has its highest demands when the river is at its lowest point. So barley is starting to seem like a good option, um, but we know that Uh, Just the fact that it uses less water is only part of the conversation because farmers grow what they grow for a reason, right? They grow it because they have the equipment, they have the knowledge, and critically, they have a buyer, right? They have somebody who's going to buy their crop. And if we wanted to have farmers grow barley instead of alfalfa, uh, our conclusion was that we needed to focus on the market for that barley and solve that market problem. And then we would be able to have an incentive for people to grow barley instead of alfalfa. And so we did what any um, river-loving, beer-drinking con- conservation organization would do. And we work with partners there to start a malt house. Okay? And that's up and running now is Sinagua Malt. They buy the barley from the farmers. They malted it in this facility right here. And then they sell the mart- malted barley product to breweries, to distilleries, and to bakeries. And it's really resulted in a win-win-win solution for the Verde River, right? Uh, The ag economy has a diversified crop that they can grow. We've um, been able to create three new full-time jobs. We planted about uh, 144 acres of barley last year. It saved uh, a little over 47 million gallons of water for the river in July alone. And when we combine that with the infrastructure work we've done, we've essentially been able to fix some of those dry spots. We've been able to reconnect the river during those dry times and we've been able to improve flows for recreation, for quality of life in the local community, and for the wildlife that also depend on the river. And so I look at that and I think, that's what we're talking about, that's what we wanna try and do. Uh, But the question is, how do we take that approach and maybe apply it to this basin-wide challenge, right? Knowing that, well, not everybody's gonna drink beer to save the entire Colorado River, We've gotta think about some other (laughs) solutions, okay? And, and basin wide again, the challenge is really overallocation, drought and climate change that are just, you know, really diminishing supplies on the river and creating tension and creating potential conflict. And we see that most uh, clearly in the decline of the, our reservoirs, right, as I mentioned in the beginning, both Lake Mead and Lake Powell, right at about 40 percent full, they're, they're hovering right on the line that if they drop below, there are big concerns about what's going to happen. If Lake Mead drops another three feet, it's gonna trigger mandatory shortages for Arizona and the lower basin. And Arizona and California and Nevada are currently negotiating how to respond to that. For the upper basin, if Lake Powell continues to decline, the impacts are a little more uncertain, and uncertainty makes water users very uncomfortable. In 2013, the Secretary of Interior came to the upper basin states, right? She came to Colorado and Utah and New Mexico and Wyoming, and she said, if we see a repeat of this past hydrology are you prepared to handle those impacts right if lake powell started in 2013 and experienced the same drought would you be prepared and she called this the stress test right if you stress the system what's going to happen and the upper basin states you know retreated to their corners they did their modeling and they came back with a pretty resounding answer of no we're not prepared if we see a repeat of the past drought uh, you're going to give homer a heart attack and Lake Powell is gonna crash below levels that are gonna jeopardize hydropower, that's gonna jeopardize the revenue that comes from the sale of hydropower that pays for things like the Endangered Fish Recovery Program. And then critically, what really got everybody's attention is that if Lake Powell were uh, were to continue to decline, it would threaten the ability of the upper basin to meet its obligations under the Colorado River Compact. Uh, And that is what really got people's attention. And so they thought, well, what can we done about this? And they came up with three solutions. The first was to try and uh, increase the supply in the upper basin. And they're currently doing that through things like tamarisk removal and weather modification or cloud seeding. Right, They're trying to make it snow more in the upper basin. The second thing that they're going to do is change how they manage the system. Right? There's other reservoirs besides Lake Powell that we have in the upper basin. And if Lake Powell were to continue to decline, they could cut water out of those upstream reservoirs in order to prop Lake Powell up. But that's a temporary solution. Weather modification is moderately beneficial at best, uh, according to some recent studies. And so that led them to their third solution, which is called demand management, uh, which is a term that's used to talk about a program that would compensate willing water users to temporarily reduce their water use. They would then store those water savings in an account to keep Lake Powell above those critical levels and to help avoid any compact issues. Conceptually, here's how demand management would work. You have municipalities or other other water right holders that really need certainty, right? They really can't um, have any interruptions in their supply. They would pay into a fund that would go to compensate those other water right holders that could temporarily reduce their use. You take those water savings, you accrue them over time in an account, and then you use those to keep those reservoir levels up and to again, avoid any compact issues. And then this is the attorney in the lower basin who's going to file his lawsuit on the compact and he gets you know cut off at the pass and everybody goes home happy. Uh, So it might sound nice in concept but like a lot of things in water so the devil's in the details right and this concept raises a lot of legal questions, economic questions, technical questions, social and equity questions about how it's going to work on the ground and that's really where we've spent our time over the last five years working with our ag partners to understand how can you reduce water use, but how can you do it in a way that's going to work for ag over the long run, and how can you do it in a way that works for communities and works for the river? Right? We know pretty well that if you pay somebody enough money, they'll stop using their water. Right? That's not the question. The question is, can we do it in a way that eases the stress on the system, that doesn't do it on the backs of one water user, on one geography, or one water sector? That's involved everything from us doing economic analyses, legal research, um, field research with Colorado State University. We've done small scale pilot projects with ag producers across the West Slope, across the upper basin, trying to figure out what this looks like on the ground. And all of that has really led to um, a two year pilot project with the Grand Valley Water Users Association that was sort of the culmination of all of that different research. And the Grand Valley Water User Association, I'll focus on this pilot project. Um, they are one of the major irrigation water providers in Colorado. They divert water from the Colorado at the roller dam right here, which you may have seen that big red iron structure off of i 70 as you're coming into Palisade. So they divert water there to provide irrigation for some 24,000 acres of land outside of Grand Junction and Fruta. They have one of the oldest and most senior water rights on the Colorado River. They operate their own power plant, a hydropower plant. And critically, they work with other irrigation districts in the area, they work with the Bureau of Reclamation, they work with Fish and Wildlife Service to meet flow targets for endangered fish species in a section of critical habitat called the 15 Mile Reach. So they've sort of got it all going on in the Grand Valley. And when we started talking with them about demand management, you can imagine there were a lot of concerns Um, But they sort of stepped into the void with us as a willing partner um, To figure out again Can we reduce water use and can we do it in a way that meets multiple goals? And here's what those look like. So first and foremost, we did need to reduce water use We need did need to figure out on the ground how to make sure there was a verifiable net reduction in how much water they were using But that was really the starting point from there. We wanted to involve a range of partners, right? We wanted both advocates and critics at the table that could help us think through all the different issues and provide different perspectives. We wanted to scale up. We wanted to figure out if we could get a solution that could match the size of the challenge. Knowing, of course, that we're not gonna solve the issues in the Colorado River Basin and Grand Valley, but we could come up with an approach that was replicable, that could be done in other areas and scaled up from there. Uh, We knew from our past work that we couldn't go farmer by farmer or parcel by parcel and get to the scale that we needed. And so part of this was testing the nuts and bolts about how a program could work for an irrigation district, right? Not just for the individual, but for that larger organization that manages water for thousands of shareholders. And for them to participate, they needed an incentive also. And so part of our pilot program involved bringing funds to them to help make some infrastructure improvements. Uh, that's going to have ongoing benefits for the association. It's going to have ongoing benefits for some of their shareholders that might never participate in demand management. And for us, we've been doing infrastructure work there for decades now. It's going to have ongoing benefits for the river as well. Uh, and then last, we wanted to work on addressing community concerns. Community concerns on one side about this basin-wide risk and what it means for Grand Valley and why they should care. And community concerns sort of on the small scale also about what this program was going to look like and feel like on the ground. So the pilot program ran in 2017 and 2018. And we're wrapping up our final reports now. And this is how we did. We had a total of 21 participating farmers. Each year, we had more interest in participating than we had funds available. So we had to run a lottery to decide who would participate. And people participated for a whole range of reasons. Some of them, it just made financial sense. They ran the numbers. This looks like a good deal I'm in. Some of them really like being able to have an additional management tool in their toolbox to maintain sort of the success of their operation. Some of them are really motivated by being involved in this kind of program to help shape the solution. They think you know, ag needs a seat at the table, they need to have a leadership voice in this, and I'm committing because that's what I wanna do. We enrolled a little over 2,300 acres, meeting our, you know, our goal of scaling up. That was about 10 times larger than any of our past pilot projects to date. We came up with four different ways that people could reduce water use. They could forgo irrigation for the whole season, or they could choose to get irrigation water at a couple different times to get different crops established. And critically, we learned that if you had, you know, instead of two, really this was two one-year programs, if you had a longer-term program, if you had a three, a five, a 10-year program, people would come up with pretty creative ways to reduce their water use and kind of weave that into their agricultural operations. Almost like they would in a uh, crop rotation, right? We generated almost uh, 6,000 acre feet of water savings. And uh, acre foot is sort of the, how the water world talks about volumes of water. It's about 325,000 gallons for one acre foot. Or easier to think about it is that one acre foot is about enough water for two average homes for a year. So 6,000 acre feet it's enough water for 12,000 homes for one year. It was about 2 billion gallons in the river, or at the peak of the growing season, it was about 15 additional CFS in that section of critical habitat. We were also interested in sort of the secondary benefits of this. If we're changing water management to improve flows, to provide water security, what else might we be getting? And we estimated that for every acre foot of water we were able to put in the river, we got about $100 in return back to the local community. And that came from things like increased hydropower generation at their power plant. It came from reductions in salt and selenium when that ground wasn't irrigated. And it came from improve, improved flows in the 15 mile reach for endangered fish and improved flows for recreation. And so I think you know at the end of the day, when we've done this pilot project, we've concluded like, yeah, this approach is workable. There are still a lot of questions to answer about how to do this long term, what the legal mechanisms are how we pay for something like this long term but we have an approach that we think is scalable for the grand valley and replicable for other places and now our task is okay where do we go from here how do we socialize this idea of water sharing of reducing water use and doing it in this way and this is what we're focused on in terms of where we take it from here we work like i said throughout the entire basin and we're going to be Um, replicating what we did in Grand Valley and all those other basin states and this is really our focus Um, with again the idea that it's not just about reducing water use I mean that's the starting place but but doing it in this way that's gonna promote healthy rivers for healthy fish and wildlife but also for the communities that depend on them okay because if we have a healthy river and it comes on the backs of the Grand Junctions of the world we know that it's not going to be a lasting solution Same if it all has to come out of ag, we need a strong ag economy and they're there, they're willing to participate, but they recognize that it can't be just them. I like to think too about opportunities for the next generation. Again, going back and thinking about a shift from agricultural producers as just producers of food and fiber to them taking on a larger role as really stewards of these natural resources. And then for all of that, we're gonna keep focusing on how we bring together all people to make these creative solutions, right? Our critics, Our advocates, the people that would rather we would just go away, the people that are excited to talk to us, uh, we're going to bring them all to the table to try and figure it out. Uh, Because critically, partnerships are the foundation of everything we do, right? We can't do any of this alone. And so now I'm going to recruit everybody in the room to join us and just some takeaways about things I think you can do to make a difference in water. Again, I think water can feel just overwhelmingly complex and like you need a A lot agree to participate in the water conversation and I would say no you don't you have to just show up and ask questions and that's sort of the first thing I would recommend to do is show up and ask questions about where your water comes from because I think it's fascinating to know locally how Aspen or Carbondale where they get their water and then I think you'll see connections between local water and some of the issues that are going on in the Colorado River Basin I think food choice has to be a big part of it. Again, a lot of water use goes to agriculture. That's something we do need to confront. Uh, Back to the theme of we can't do it all alone, help recruit other people to talk to them about why we need to care about our rivers and streams. And I know a lot of you in the room are probably doing that already. And then lastly, supporting organizations that protect our rivers. Probably a little, little biased and um, thinking the Nature Conservancy is a great organization to support, but there are a lot of good organizations out there that are, that are really like in the trenches every day fighting for rivers and streams. And the way I think about it is that we make sure nature has a seat at the table, right? The municipalities of the world, ag organizations, industry, they have their team of lawyers, of engineers, okay, of advocates. That's who we are for rivers. When they show up at the table We come to represent the river and make sure that the river has a voice in those conversations Uh, and with that i'll just say thanks again for coming out and i'm happy to have a conversation and any questions
0: really interested in that process of community involvement that you use and I was wondering if you could say a few words like what the Nature Conservancy and what your role is when you go into a new community and what some of the first steps in the forums these conversations are taking place and look like
1: yeah that's a good good question I think um, the term we use is, is is community based conservation that those solutions come from the ground up in the communities and my approach, you know, coming from my days working for a land trust, is, is sort of a coffee and pie at the kitchen table approach. That you really got to spend the time sitting down with folks and hearing about what their concerns are, what opportunities they see, what keeps them up at night. You know, really just going out and listening. And then, you know, for those that are sort of familiar with social social research, it's the it's the snowball approach, right? You know, one person, they know two people, they know two people. You just start from there and. Um, A lot of it is sort of who's willing to talk to you, who's willing to have a conversation is a good place to start. And then um, it's pretty clear, at least in the water world, who the people are that that show up to meetings, right? Who are the 10 people that are showing up to all of the same meetings? You know, a lot of communities are like that. It's the same 10 people that are in this meeting, they're in that meeting. You know, you get to
2: know those people
1: and um, and you go from there.
2: That was great, Aaron, thanks very much. I've been working on a project on the Crystal River, on a Crystal River stream management planning yeah. project and implementation, and I'm, you had said that there were four activities you guys focused on in the Grand Valley to help um, farmers conserve water. And you t- talked about foregoing irrigation for an entire season. You talked about split season use of water. What were the, th- that got me to two what are the other four? Yeah, they were really I mean the other just,
1: two. yeah, they're really just, you know, uh, ro- it's really all rotational fallowing. Uh, and part of that was, part of that was by design because we wanted to test how the, how the program worked for the association. And so to do that, we kept the activities on the ground really straightforward, right? And then the Grand Valley compared to the crystal is all row crops. So they're suitable to fallowing. So people could fallow for the whole season or they could get irrigation water in August, September or October. But then talking with them, we've talked through other options that said, well, hey, if you could do this for five years, you could establish a pasture grass. You could minimally irrigate that. You could use a cover crop. We came up with a lot of other options. But our challenge is that it's really easy to measure how much water you're not using when there's nothing growing. And it becomes increasingly complex when you have any kind of crop out there. Um, So we're still doing that work to figure out how do you reduce water use in creative ways that get soil health benefits, wildlife benefits. but sort of in a separate place. So
2: yeah. since I'm still holding the mic, could you speak to what you, you've talked, both in Arizona and Colorado, some of your work focuses on, on infrastructure improvements. Can you be more specific and t- talk about how the, what they are and how they're paid for?
1: Yeah, the Verde's a good example um, that's fairly typical, which is that people have irrigation infrastructure that's maybe 50 years old at best, and sometimes 75 or 100 years old. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not very, um, <laughs> there's not a lot of finesse in how it works, right? And there are great water managers out there that say, oh, well, I put this log in here and it raises the water up to about there on the rock there. And then I know it takes 12 hours to get to my field. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, but on the Verde River, they had a headgate for one of their main ditches that was, you know, about 50, 60 years old. When they would get big rainstorm events or they wanted to actually do any changes to their headgate, right, which is what controls the amount of water that comes from the river into their ditch, the guy would literally have to go out and jump up and down on the headgate to get it to move, right? And so when it's raining and somebody's getting flooded and he gets the call at two in the morning, that's not very convenient. And so we help them replace and automate that headgate. So now he can go on his cell phone and say, okay, take 25 CFS. And we raised funds from the Bureau of Reclamation has a great program. There are increasingly a number of um, companies that are interested in offsetting and addressing their water footprint impact. So Coca-Cola helped pay for that project. Uh, and then we had you know, some philanthropy come in because we wanted them to operate that headgate in a new way. And we said, hey, if you can meet this flow target in your ditch um, for three years, we'll give you an incentive payment. And that got them over the hump of learning how to operate it in the new way, right? Because there's two pieces to infrastructure, I think. There's the actual infrastructure, and then there's learning how to do it, right? You can buy somebody a race car, but then they also need to learn how to drive it, or they're still going to drive it like their pickup. So, yeah. Of what you were just talking about. With irrigation, has anybody done a comprehensive of that 80% agriculture water of how much could be saved through the pieces you're talking about? Does anybody actually know those kind of numbers? Yeah, um, they do. So, so, So one thing that I'm really cautious of is talking about the difference between efficiency and conservation, right? So getting more efficient with your irrigation water use doesn't necessarily change how much water you're consuming. right? And so we're really um, careful to think about the water budget, which is how much water might be diverted, how much water is applied, how much water is consumed, and how much water kind of comes back to the river. And knowing what change or intervention is most appropriate to get the results we want. And some places like the Verde, that efficiency improvement was what we wanted. right? We wanted to change how much they were diverting. And other places, You know, a question I get a lot is, you know, ag uses 80% of the water. Why don't they just get more efficient? And the reality is that, again, efficiency doesn't change how much they use; it changes other parts of the water budget. Um, So that's one. So that's one piece, right? Knowing where where we want to use efficiency and where we want to use conservation, which would be actually reducing the water use, right? Like going from alfalfa to barley, or fallowing, or the, the split season irrigation. Where we want to use those different tools. And then the other part of your question, so the Pacific Institute did a report a few years ago where they surveyed agriculture in the whole Colorado River Basin. They went state by state, and they pulled crop data. They pulled irrigation data. They gave sort of a snapshot of, hey, here's what people are growing. And then they just did some sort of hypothetical scenarios and said, well, if you went from alfalfa to this, here's your water savings. If you did this intervention, here's how much water you could save. So they took that approach um, and and came up with those kinds of numbers. And then probably even older than that is the Colorado River Basin Supply and Demand Study, which the Bureau of Reclamation did. And they ran um, more scenarios than any reasonable person would want to look at about all the different changes in ag water management.
0: Any more questions?
3: Um, so in these meetings with the community, there has to be some counter perspectives um, being brought to the table, and I just wonder if you could speak to some of those um, other ideas and um, why they might not come to the table to work with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's certainly no shortage of those. One um, of the big ones? I think the biggest one is um, wh- you know why AG, uh, why why us um, what, what what you know we've already done th- we've already done th- taken these steps or. Why doesn't, you know, the growth is in the, in the municipalities, why don't they change? Why are we growing bluegrass lawns in Denver when I'm growing you know, food and fiber that people actually need? Um, so a lot of those questions about what are other people doing? Um, I think then the second biggest one I get is, okay, I might be willing to do something, but if I make a change, what's then, you know, if I try something, what's then to prevent somebody from come, coming and making me doing it? permanently okay you know the willingness the uh, voluntary basis it sounds great now but what happens if I show you that that works and then somebody comes in and makes me do it so sort of the fear that um, somebody's going to come in and and control their destiny um, is huge and then I think the third one that we're that I'm pretty aligned on is um, we get a lot of secondary benefits from irrigated agriculture in terms of wildlife habitat Um, there's a stat I like that's 3% of the lands in Colorado are rivers, lakes, wetlands, right, are are water bodies. But 80% of wildlife is within a mile of one of those water bodies. And then, um, this is when I was in the San Luis Valley, so I'm not sure how it holds statewide, but 70% of those were on private lands. And so if you think about the importance of those areas, they're maintained by irrigated ag. And so if you're gonna change that, you're not only gonna change sort of the operations for that ag person, but we could be impacting a lot of wildlife habitat that people have worked pretty hard to protect. So I think there's big questions about if I change my water management, what's it gonna mean for other things that people care about, like stream flows and wildlife habitat?
3: And then, then another question I had was around um, your choice of barley, and you had mentioned the analysis of soil, Im- soil health and improvement. Um, superficial understanding of alfalfa as a nitrogen fixing plant and so just wondering you know is barley less healthy for the soil but economically okay was that like a trade-off or what does does barley have soil health as well
1: yeah it's a good question so it's not a nitrogen fixer like alfalfa is but it's also good to know that you know they're not gonna go barley 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 forever so um, one of our next steps is to figure out well what does the rotation look like So if you're growing this other water, lower water use crop like barley, what do you do when you're not growing barley? And is that a chance to then plant, you know, maybe not alfalfa, but a cover crop that has peas in it that can fix nitrogen, right? Or those other benefits that you get from cover cropping. So can you rotate a cover crop in, it's gonna promote soil health before you then go back to, to barley or whatnot. So it's like, what does the rotation look like? So we can't just look at sort of one year, you gotta take that 10 year and then figure out how we get some of those soil health benefits. Because you're right, we wouldn't necessarily want to swap barley for water savings, and then, oh, now they've got to apply a bunch of fertilizer or, or whatnot. Yeah, that's a good question.
3: Okay, last question. Um, you, at the beginning, <laughs> mentioned um, about needing to make the call to draw from the Yampa. And I was just wondering, I know it's really complex with water laws and everything, but, you know, water laws for dummies. Like, how how does that happen? What are some of the... Um, communication lines of communication that have to occur in order for that call to be made to pull from Yeah,
1: you. yeah, great question. So, um, we won't go like full water law 101, but um, pr- prior appropriation is probably a term a lot of people have heard sort of first in time, first in right. So, that's how our water rights system works, right? The first person to go and make use of that water right gets the first priority, right? And then everybody that comes after them gets a lower priority. And so when a call happens, it says, there's not enough water for everybody. The senior guy says, I got to get mine first. And so they start shutting off people, starting with the lowest priority and working their way up until the most senior water right gets their water. And that's essentially what they did on the YAMPA. And it's the Division of Water Resources in Colorado that does that. So each basin has a water uh, division engineer, and they have water commissioners. They're the guys that are out there saying, sorry, Bob today's your day, and they will turn down their headgate and put a lock on it. Um, and in, place, in a lot of places in Colorado, it happens on a regular basis, and people are used to it. They have plans in place. Um, but in the Yampa, it was, a real, it was a real wake-up call.
3: With the growth on the Front Range, what kind of effort are they making with their water consumption?
1: That's a great question. Also, um, I'd say the short answer is it varies. Some places are very proactive, have done a- amazing work on water conservation on doing, you know, irrigation audits for people on really driving home efficient appliances, other places a little further behind. Um, I think what we're seeing in Colorado that gives me promise is that there's uh greater conversation between the water use community and the land use community, right? Which really happened in two different places, right? You did water planning over here and you did land use planning over here and they never really talked to each other. And now they're talking to each other much more. They're coming up with development guidelines that say, hey, here's how we know, like you can develop in different ways and we know there are ways to do land development that results in much less water use. And so they're starting to have that conversation. And then one thing that we've seen um, kind of across the, nation is that population growth and water use are, are it's called the great decoupling, right? They're, they're decoupling, population is going up, but water use is going down. And it's not just per person water use, it's actual net water use is going down. So again, we know like we can have cities, we can have populations that grow, and we can do it in ways that, that don't use as much water. And you know, that trend doesn't happen, or it's not happening everywhere, but the trend is um, happening, so. But, you know, have to stay diligent, I think,
0: so. All right, we'll take uh, one more question. Anybody? I
2: have one, okay. I, I don't have to have the last one. Somebody else doesn't have a chance to take a question. Thanks. Um, th- speaking of the AMPA, again, this might not be what a project you're working on, but you guys have a River Restoration Fund project that got started with around the AMPA. So yeah. how can you, th- this is effectively a way to get steamboat springs and municipal water users to contribute funding to help finance water use improvements in agriculture to make water available for either the environment or can you explain how that works and who's who's paying?
1: I'll do my best Uh, so it's called the YAMPA Water Fund and for the last you know five or so years the Nature Conservancy and the Colorado Water Trust have worked with The city of steamboat springs and the upper yampa water conservancy district to do um, water leases for the yampa the last few years the yampa has dropped pretty low and when it gets below 75 cfs or something or a certain temperature range they shut down the yampa in town which is a huge economic impact for people that like to go fishing and tubing and whatnot and so we had been doing those leases and then the question was well what do we do long-term, right? We can't just, we don't want to just pay every year, every year, it's hard, really hard to do that. And so can we create a fund that would do this long-term? And so that's what we've been developing and it just kicked off. So the city will pay into it. Um, Corporations will pay into it. You know, essentially we're trying to bring everybody to the table who benefits from having water in the Yampa, which is the business community, right? It's the city, um, it's, it's ag, it's others. Try to bring them all to the table to say, if we all chip in a little bit, we can make this happen. We can keep flows in there. Um, but I'm not sure who the other funders are besides the city. How much money you I don't know that either. But I can find out. Yeah.
4: where's the water
1: coming from? Most of the water is, um, is leased out of Stagecoach Reservoir. So, stage, so the Upper Yampa owns water in Stagecoach that they lease to wh- whoever wants to lease it. And, um, and we want to lease it for the, for the river. You know it happens? And then then part of it is to say, well, we want to lease it under these conditions, right? So this is what triggers the lease and here's how much. and um, Then sometimes we're able to do, like one year we leased it through town and the rules for leasing water in Colorado, as you can imagine, are fairly intricate. You can't surprisingly just put water in the river because you want to. Uh, So we were able to put water in the stretch of town, but then we wanted to see if we could get it further down. And so we leased it from upper yamper for stagecoach it went through town and then we sold it to tri-state that needed water in craig and so we were able to deliver it all the way down to craig so it's kind of trying to figure out how you put all those puzzle pieces together yeah. all right Let's thank Aaron. again okay. thanks y'all appreciate it